morning. morning. Is uh, looks like you guys are all matching. Is something happening today? <laughs> all right, everybody being shy about it. That's okay. Uh, take your Bibles out. Let's turn to Daniel chapter nine. Daniel chapter nine. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, uh, my name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here, and excited to be with you all this morning as we uh, continue this series called Courageous Church where we have been following along with this story throughout the book of Daniel, looking at the history of Israel as they go into exile in a foreign land. And of course, while we're in there, we have all these uh, big, emphatic stories about the difficulties and challenges that they face uh, while living in exile among a king and with with authority and leadership that, that isn't so conducive to their way of life. And though our situation is pretty different, uh, one of the parallels that we've drawn along the way is to see uh, that Daniel gives us, as Christians today, a picture or idea about how we might navigate a life of faithfulness to God while in exile. So over the last several weeks, we've looked at uh, several different topics surrounding this. So we're looking at uh, things like engaging the world, sharing the gospel through evangelism. Looked at having a godly influence, resisting worldly influence at times. But this week, uh, we see some of Daniel's story really kind of coming to a close here. And we'll focus on the idea of prayerfulness in exile. Prayerfulness in exile. Uh, Martin Luther famously uh, said this, I am so busy right now that if I did not spend three hours each day in prayer, I could not get through the day. I'm so busy right now that if I did not spend three hours in prayer, I could not get through the day. Anybody else feel that this morning? Got a lot going on today, big Super Bowl game. Hey, maybe three hours today in prayer, right? Maybe for some of us, right? That wasn't a slight, by the way. But for many Christians, myself included, our devotion to prayer just really doesn't look much like that, if we're honest, right? A a lot of times prayer is a discipline, something we have to work hard for. It seems like uh, maybe something that gets tossed in before a meal or when we wake up or just before we go to bed. But prayer for many of us is, is a labor, something that we don't see as being that significant for our life. And honestly, our testimony of prayerfulness in our own lives would look pretty different than that of Martin Luther. But I, I want us to see and be encouraged today from our passage that Christians living in exile should be a prayerful people. We should be a prayerful people who pray intently, who pray humbly, and who pray expectantly. So let's read in Daniel chapter 9 together. So we'll walk through this passage and then look at a few points of application just quickly. So uh, starting with a little bit of background or context in verse 1 through 2, it says this. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in his first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to the prophet Jeremiah, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So by this point in the story, understand that Israel has been living in exile among the Babylonians for quite some time. Uh, You see, when all of this began, uh, Daniel was about 15 years old. He belonged to the first uh, group of Israelites sent into exile. And at about 15 years old, uh, this exile for his people began somewhere around the year 605 B.C., But between then and now, and what we've seen throughout this long uh, history unfolding throughout the book of Daniel, now in chapter 9, this long, complicated uh, history has been unfolding around them within the Babylonian kingdom, and now there's this new 
king, this new ruler named Darius. But, but here's the important thing to know about all of this. That nearly 70 years had passed and now is an 80-ish something year old man, Daniel uncovers this important detail. You see, he's reading the book of Jeremiah and he realizes that Jeremiah prophesied that Israel would go into captivity for a period of 70 years. So while he's sitting there, having his quiet time, and his cup of coffee, and Instagramming the whole thing. <laughs> he comes to this realization, doing the math, well, that if the exile began here, and now we're somewhere here in the mid-530s, don't know exactly where it is, he does the math and realizes their exile is about to come to a close. So we see this prayer, <clears throat> starting in verse 3. So I turned to the Lord <clears throat> and pleaded with Him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth, and in ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery, because of the treachery that they have committed against you, to us, O Lord." belongs open shame. To, you, to us, O oh Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To our Lord belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and not, have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey the Lord. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works and in all that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath turn away from your city of Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. So there's kind of a lot of uh, repetition happening here, but, but here throughout this, Daniel's humility. You see, when he looks at their situation, how they found themselves in exile for some 
70 or 60 some odd years by this point in time, he looks inwardly and recognizes with a posture of humility that the reason they were exiled in the first place was because of their own unfaithfulness. He was willing to own the sin of himself and the sin of his people. But despite owning that sin, before, despite, despite being honest before God and recognizing the situation that they found themselves in, Daniel makes this bold request to God in the very same breath. He says this in verse 17 through 19. Now our God, now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servants. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear. O God, and hear, open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. Hear this, we do not make request of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, hear and act for your sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. So despite this honest recognition of his and his people's sin and their failures, despite the punishment that they face now living in exile in a foreign land, and despite their continuous stubbornness before God, Daniel humbly yet confidently asks God to remember the covenant with his people and to look upon them with mercy. The name Yahweh for God appears seven times in this chapter, but nowhere else in the book of Daniel. So nowhere else in the book of Daniel is the name for God Yahweh used, but it appears seven times here in this passage. And and I don't think that's a coincidence because the name Yahweh is a personal covenant name for God. It's the name that God gave to the Israelites. It's the name he said that he would be identified because they were his covenant people. So when Daniel calls upon the name of Yahweh, he uses that name because he knows he's praying to the covenant-keeping God. How could Daniel possibly think that God would show them mercy and forgiveness despite their hard-heartedness and their stubbornness and rebellion? Well, it's because Daniel knew that our God is a God of grace and mercy. Our God is a covenant-keeper who is faithful to keep his promises to his people. And it's in light of that grace that Daniel asked God to act according to his promises now and bring an end to their exile, as he said he would. So look with me in verses 20 through 23. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in a vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved." Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So just as happened in Daniel 8, we haven't covered that passage together, but this is the second appearance, the time that the angel Gabriel came to Daniel while he was praying. And Gabriel told Daniel that God had essentially heard what he had prayed and that he, Gabriel, was sent to give him insight and understanding about what was to come 
in the coming years for Israel. Verse 23 says that God heard and answered Daniel's prayers because he was greatly loved. Because God, by his grace, shows favor to his people. Verses 24 through 27 says this. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with the squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of, wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed, decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So you might read that and think, well, hey, uh, that's not a very clear answer to Daniel's prayer. <laughs> Anybody else? Anybody perfectly get it? You can take over from me for here. You might think, hey, that's not a very clear answer to the question. And in some sense, it isn't. Uh, you see, when God speaks to Daniel in this vision, most people agree that uh, this section, these few verses right here, constitute the most difficult to understand passage, maybe in all the Bible, but definitely here in the book of Daniel. What exactly does this mean? We know there's some type of figurative language being used. We know that, that there, there's this discussion of weeks. We may be talking about years. What period of time do these years accord with? Uh, right now, if everybody has your like uh, eschatology charts, your end, end time charts, go ahead and pull those out. Let's do some math together. Try to figure out when the world is in. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do any of that. Uh, because fortunately, my topic is prayer today, so we don't have too much time to delve into the specifics of what this means. If you want a hot take, you can email me at michael at ctksensi.com. But what is God saying? We could spend a lot of time unpacking this, but suffice it to say, God is both directly addressing Daniel's prayer for deliverance from exile, but he's speaking about more than just the present. So God is telling Daniel that Jerusalem will be restored in the near future, and that Israel will return from exile in the present temporal sense. But through this, God is also speaking about a future, more eternal sense, in which he will establish his kingdom forever through the coming of an anointed one, a prince. In a way, Daniel could not fully know or comprehend, but, but God is pointing ahead to a lot of things that will occur regarding the, the end of times and, and the desolation of Jerusalem and all things. But, but within that, this thread emerges where God is pointing ahead to Jesus who would liberate the captives from their sin and bring an end to all people's exile, restore all things to himself and establish an eternal kingdom among them. That's the future that God speaks about here. 
Now, that's a brilliant and exciting picture that, that we could spend a lot of time unpacking, as I said. But I want us to focus on, on really just one thread of ideas, one, one kind of aspect or topic within this, and, and look at this idea of prayerfulness as exiles. Because demonstrated here in the way that Daniel approaches God, and the way he prays for himself and for his people in their situation, I think that we can draw parallels to see, likewise, that Christians living in exile should be a prayerful people. So, first thing that we see is this. As Christians living in exile, we should be a prayerful people who pray intently. When Daniel looked at his situation, the Israelites are, are, are in need of discernment about the prophecies of Jeremiah. He's looking at the events of world history unfolding around him. The situation that they find themselves in under yet another king ruling over Babylon. His first response is not to look within himself or look back at his impressive track record of prophecies and vision. Rather, in verse 3, what did Daniel do? It says he prayed and fasted and sought the Lord. Daniel goes to God in prayer and asks him to do for the Israelites what he alone can do. I'll say this, as Christians, we should be marked by the same kind of resolve to seek God in prayer for all things. And I can rest my case on this simple contention. God is all-knowing. God is fully in control, fully able to do exactly what he wants to do at any given time. You and I are sinful, limited people. We know nothing, and we are ultimately powerless in the world. And if we truly believe that to be true, why wouldn't we be devoted to prayer? As Christians, we should be marked by this. We should be marked by this resolve to seek, to fast, to want to commune with God, to seek after Him for what we need. But here's my honest confession to you. Uh, I, there are many Christians in the world, many Christians that I have met who I know have these rich and disciplined and life-giving times of prayer where it's like they just can't get enough. They're always praying. They wake up in the morning early and pray. They go to bed praying at night. They're praying throughout the day. There are these people with these rich prayer lives. And here's my honest confession. Uh, I am not one of those people. I'm not. I never have been. I wish I was, but I'm not. Even though intellectually I understand to some degree my need for prayer... That I need to be seeking God. I need to come before Him. I can see demonstrated in my life actually a very different belief, which is that I don't need God. I don't need God. I can do things on my own strength. I can do things by my own wisdom. I don't have to ask for what I need. I'm capable enough to get it. But listen. See this contention that a true understanding of the greatness and ability of our God in light of our own sin and limitations should drive us to our knees as prayer, in prayer. As Christians navigating an age in exile especially, we are consistently, and you know this to be true from your own life, we are consistently in need of a resolve, a peace, a strength, and a wisdom that are so far beyond ourselves. Think about all the things that we navigate in this time between the times and the tension between two worlds. How do you decide where to send your kids to school? How do I navigate the political tensions that fracture our world and fracture our church, frankly? How can I be a witness in my workplace when my coworkers are antagonistic 
to my faith. Well, listen, there is no moral or ethical issue facing you or the church today that God cannot give us wisdom, supernatural wisdom to navigate. James 1.5 says God promises to freely give wisdom to all, give freely give wisdom that we lack if only we would go to him and ask. As Spurgeon said about this very passage in Daniel, prayer is that great key which opens mysteries. There is no mystery to God. We can go to him in prayer for wisdom and discernment about the things that we face. What about our lives? How do we resist worldly influences? How do I not be looking like the world? How do I maintain godliness in this present age? How can I do the same for my children? Well, church, you and I have no power within ourselves to deaden the sinful desires within our flesh. But Jesus teaches us to pray against temptation in Matthew chapter 26. And that when we are tempted... The Bible teaches us in James chapter 4 verse 7 that God gives us strength to flee these desires. We can go to him in prayer to seek a power that is beyond ourselves. What do we do when persecution and trial comes our way? How do we respond when our godly way of life is threatened? What do we do with the political currents that that take shape and and, and, and move about in the world? How do we not lose hope? How do, we, how do we have wisdom? How do we have discernment about how we ought to live? What do we do when it seems like the tides are shifting? Well, church, we pray to the God who is sovereign over all things. As it says in Daniel 2.21, our God sets up kings and deposes them. At the very beginning of this passage, it says that, that Darius was made king. And many commentators believe that that's like a a subtle way of reminding the reader that it was God who made Darius king. It was God who put him in his place. It was God who controls him. It was God who moved the currents of world history. It was God who orchestrated the situation. He is a sovereign God. Our God isn't bound by who sits behind the desk in the Oval Office, nor is he bound or influenced by the one who sits behind the desk on the Late Show, or the Late Late Show, or the Late Night Show, or Late Night with Letterman, or anything like that. Anything we see at work in our world, no authority, no influence, or anything like that. Our God is not bound to these things. Daniel prays to Adonai, God, the sovereign ruler of all. And likewise, we pray to the God who shapes and holds the events of world history in his hand and uses them for his purposes and for his glory and for the good of his church. And if this is true, if this is true, church, then we ought to be a people disciplined to pray to God intently. Now, while we might believe all these things to be true, often we know there's a disconnect between our heads, what we believe to be true, and what we actually practice in our lives. We know that at some point in time, this this idea has to meet the ground, right? This has to meet our lives practically. So let me just ask you this question and then offer some framework for consideration. What would it look like for you to be practically devoted to prayer in your life? Not just this vague idea or generalization about prayer or these good ideas, but but you, me, Cameron Waterworth. What does it look like for me to be practically devoted to prayer in my life? And the way I'd go about thinking that is what kind of disciplines, what kind of rhythms can I put into place in my life to create a posture of prayerfulness, a posture of coming before God that I desperately need? 
Maybe you're somebody like Martin Luther and you need to wake up and block out time to pray. Maybe you're somebody like Brother Lawrence, who was a, uh, was a lowly monk, who was, uh, who was destined, maybe you've read Practicing the Presence of God before this little tiny book uh, by Brother Lawrence. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you take a strategy more like him, who took 1 Thessalonians 5.17 seriously and prayed without ceasing, who, ceasing, who developed a, a rhythm and an approach to communing with God in everyday life. As he was cooking and cleaning in the monastery, he developed this discipline he called Practicing the Presence of God. He was in prayer always throughout the day, whatever that looks like in your life, whether that's creating these rhythms, creating these disciplines, blocking out time, prayer ought to be a priority for us. And we can discipline ourselves to make it so. But it's not a priority that's a burden. We need this. We need God. We need God to grant us wisdom. We need God to give us power. So let's go to him intently. The second thing is we ought to pray humbly. It isn't difficult to see in this passage from Daniel, this posture of humility driving both the way he approaches God and what he asks of him. Because though he's confident of God's grace and mercy, Daniel nonetheless comes to God honestly and openly confessing his sins and the sins of his people, Israel. Of all the things before them, of all the things happening in the world, of all the things going on with Darius and the other Babylonian kings and all these events of world history, the issue of greatest concern for Daniel was Israel's righteousness before God. How they appeared before a holy God. There were many things to, to grasp their attention, to seal their affections, but the issue of greatest concern was their own righteousness before God. Here's why I think that's relevant for us. As, as Christians living in exile and seeking to navigate all the challenges and all the difficulties that you know as well as I do come along with that, sometimes, if we're honest, our concern can be with everything or everyone but ourselves, right? Sometimes our concern can be with every single thing or everybody else but ourselves. And listen, church, there are a mountain of things that we might ask God to do in our lives and in our world, and those are noble, God-honoring things. We ought to be seeking and asking God to do these big and bold things in our lives and in our world. But church, we also have to have the humility to recognize that the greatest work we need God to do begins in our own lives. The greatest work we need God to do begins in our own hearts. We are sinners who desperately need God's grace. We need God's grace to transform our hearts, transform our minds, and shape our attitudes and our actions and everything else in between. And we know that God intends to do this work in our lives, but how often do we find ourselves driven to our knees asking God to do it? How often are we on our knees asking God to supernaturally work in our lives? Compare that to how we approach things so often, which is in our own power, by our own wisdom, and by our own strength. There can be that disconnect, like I said before, between what we say and what we know to be true and how we ultimately live. Humility before God begins with a discipline. That is a discipline to regularly seek Him in prayer confessing our sins and asking him to do a work of transformation in our lives. 
humility of our hearts begins with bended knees, coming before God, recognizing that we are weak and needy sinners who need Him to work and to move in our lives and in our world. Now, I could wrap it up there, but I'll throw this in for, for extra, okay? This is a freebie. You ready? Uh, I think, as I was thinking about this passage, I think a humble posture before God in prayer has not only a transformative effect on us and how we perceive ourselves, but also in our thoughts and attitudes towards others. As I thought about this passage this week, I have to admit that I was convicted as I read the words of Daniel because I looked at not only how Daniel was owning his own sin, but how he also confessed and owned the national sins of Israel, the sins of all his people. He was grieved by the fact that all his people were living lives that were displeasing to God. There was no, God, look at what these wicked Israelites are doing over here. God, look at what those wicked Israelites are doing over there. There was no God, I can't believe that these Israelites are voting blue. God, I can't believe that these Israelites over here are voting Republican. There was nothing like that. Rather, he lamented the sin of his people in a way that was personal because of how they defamed the name of God. And here's why I think that's significant. At least it was for me. And maybe this is helpful for you too, or maybe it's not, and you can just toss that out. Like I said, it's a freebie. You didn't pay for that part. But I saw on Twitter this week where a well-known Christian who, uh, in my honest confession, I don't like that much, um, wrote a frankly stupid and inflammatory statement uh, about women, and I bristled. I was angry that he would say such a thing. I was angry about what his apparent intent was, saying it the way that he did. I was angry about the witness for the church that I thought he was damaging But as I read this passage this week, I had to seriously examine myself and ask, why was my first response anger? Why was my first response anger? Why am I not grieved? Why wouldn't I first be in prayer asking that God would soften his heart and and use these on these things and use his reach in a gospel advancing way? I don't know a lot, but I'm wise enough to know that uh, all motives, especially my own, are often mixed. I could easily rationalize how my anger was this righteous anger or zeal to see this man honor God in his speech and in his witness. And I was angry that he didn't. But I also know some part of me drew a line in the sand thinking these Christians are the problem. These Christians are the problem. And as I drew that line in the sand, I simultaneously hoped that he would face the backlash for his recklessness. And as I did that, I also simultaneously felt better about my own self-righteous way. Why was my first response not to go to God in prayer for their sake? And Jesus says to pray for your enemies, I couldn't even pray for my brothers. And all that to say, I think a humility or lack thereof that we have before God worked out in our life of prayer has a transformative effect on our relationships with others. As Jesus taught us, you are less concerned with the speck in another person's eyes when you have the humility to recognize the log in your own. And you are driven to prayer. Again, that's a freebie, so moving on. I like non-endings. I'm comfortable with it. Are you too? Third thing, I think that we ought to pray expectantly. 
As I mentioned when we read through this passage, Daniel prays to appeal to God to act with grace and mercy towards them in their exile. Get this in verse 18, not because of their righteousness, but because of his faithfulness. He prays to Yahweh, our God who is faithful to keep his covenant and faithful to his promises to his people. And he prays intently and humbly, but expectantly, knowing that God is a keeper of promises, a keeper of things that he reveals to us in his word. He's faithful to his people. Um, Many of you guys know uh, one of our pastors, Eric. He's not here today, so I'm saying this preemptively, but I know something's going to happen when he gets here. Uh, He will make this obnoxious, dumb sports prediction. Are you ready? You've heard this. Some of you have heard this before, and your eyes are rolled already. For everybody else, just start rolling your eyes now. He's going to say this. He'll say this about the Super Bowl. I'd almost bet my next paycheck on it. He will say this. I bet, this is my bold prediction, one of the teams is going to win by at least one point. That's what he'll say. I promise you, I've heard him say that joke publicly here like three different times. And, and the things that he jokes about publicly, I can, I can attest, is his friend and fellow pastor. He workshops it throughout the week. He's been trying to get this material to work, trying to get this material to land. And we roll our eyes about that because it's easy to be confident in what you know, right? It's easy to be confident. Of course that's going to happen. It's easy to be confident in what you know. But get this. Since our God is faithful, we can be confident in what we know. We can be confident in what we know. Confidence in God enables bold, expectant prayers from his people. We know who God is. We know how he will act. We know what he wants to do. When we approach him in prayer, we don't do so hopelessly with our hands in the air, hoping that we shook the magic gate ball just right this time and we'll finally get the right answer. We know our God. We know he is faithful. We know he is steadfast, that he is good, that he will follow through on what he says. And if that's true in our lives, if that's true for us, if the faithfulness of God is the basis for expectant and bold prayer, then what exactly should we be expectantly and boldly praying for? Well, I think this is an important question because we don't expectantly pray for God to grant us all our wishes like some genie in a bottle, right? If that were the case, we could just close up shop early this morning because uh, might as well spend the remainder of our time praying the Bengals win the Super Bowl, right? Or Bengals, as some of you say. You don't hear it, I hear it. I'm from Arkansas. You can make fun of the way I talk to you. It's okay. But we don't expectantly pray for God to just grant us anything we wish, like some genie in a bottle. If that were the case, then there would be no limit. We just pray for what we want, and we expect that God supernaturally is just going to bless whatever we think and whatever we want. But here's an important truth. Prayer is not about bending God's will to our own. As Stanley Jones says, prayer is aligning ourselves with the purposes of God. 1 John 5.14 says this, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So really the question for us is not how do we increase our expectations of God to do what we want, but rather how do we align ourselves more fully with his will and pray expectantly to that end. There are many things I think that would be appropriate for us as Christians right now navigating life in exile to pray expectantly for But I'll give you two categories. The first is this. We ought to pray expectantly that God would move in our lives. 
First and foremost, we can pray expectantly that God will bring up to completion the work of the gospel in us. Philippians 1.6 says that I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. We can pray confidently to that end because we know God will do it. Yeah, for, I know for many of us, this idea of God's will, what he wants to do in our lives, what he wants to do among us is this like far off kind of nebulous thing. And it's like, oh, I don't know what is the will of God. I'm just praying and trying to find out. But you want to know what God is going to do in your life? I'll make it very simple. He's going to make you look more like Christ. That's what he's going to do in your life. That's 99.9999999999% of what you need to know. That's the trajectory for the whole of your life. God's word tells us this grand and beautiful story that the trajectory for our lives is that God is shaping us and molding us to look more like Christ. As we navigate all the complexities and difficulties of living in the world as exiles, we can be confident at the very least that God desires to do us, to do this in us and we can be prayerful to that end. This is true in seasons when we're on the mountaintops and seeing lots of fruit in our lives. And it's true when we are challenged, persecuted, and at odds with the world that we live in. No matter our circumstances, we know that God will grant us both wisdom and strength because he is doing a work in us. 2 Peter 1.3 says that God has granted us everything we need for life and godliness. Know this as you wade through the complexities and difficulties of living faithfully to God in a world that isn't. You can know with confidence that God's will is to work in your life. God will work things out for your good and for his glory. God will shape and mold you into the image of Christ. But secondly, we pray asking God to move in our world. As Christians, though, we occupy this kind of time between the times we live on earth but we're also citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Living as exiles in the world, we are ultimately seeking God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, just as Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6. As we live for this kingdom, Jesus has given us the charge of advancing that kingdom, of proclaiming the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I'll just say this practically for us as, as Christians, I know that evangelism, the idea of engaging a lost world with the gospel is, is frankly terrifying. Or maybe you put your hands up in the air and you're like, I don't even know how to do that, how I would begin. Let me just give you something practical to put into your pocket now. We should be praying expectantly that God would grant us opportunities and make us fruitful in spreading the gospel in our circles. That God would make ripe these opportunities, expectantly prayer, expectantly prayerful that God would work in and through us as he says that he will. And in all these things, asking God to move in our lives and in our world, we know that there is no such thing as an outsized prayer when we ask according to his will. And therefore, we as Christians should be marked by expectant prayer. That said, as we come to a close, I, I do want to turn the corner a little bit. I've seeded the, the ground before to tell you that I'm okay with uh, non-endings. And as we come to a close, I want to turn a corner a little bit to qualify, I think, what it means to live expectantly as a Christian living in exile in the world, or pray expectantly. Because in some sense, we are confident and bold in asking God to do the work that he will do in our lives and in our world. But, you know, it's a certain kind of expectation. And what I mean is that our expectation, though built on 
a confidence in God accounts for the reality of our situation as exiles living in the world for a kingdom that is not of the world. Our expectations are bold. We should come before God boldly and expectantly asking him to do great things in our lives and great things in our world, great things in his church, great things in your family, great things at Christ the King Church. And maybe this seems like a less than hopeful, dark kind of non-ending to this emphatic call to prayer, but it's important that we see how prayer fits within this contention that we live in. And maybe this summons to prayer feels a little bit incomplete, but any realistic talk of our status as exiles will feel that way because the kingdom we live for is both here and still to come. We can pray boldly, we can pray expectantly, but it's a tethered expectation. We know God will work exactly how he wants to. It may not look how we think it should. It may not look all rosy, but we know in all of these things, whatever challenges, suffering, or hardships might come our way in this life, we can rest on the certainty that God is at work in it all. Because he's sovereign and he is good. And therefore we can pray expectantly to that end. And church, finally, as we consider this reality, let us be given to prayerfulness. Let it be said that we are a people who seek God intently in our sojourning. That we seek his grace to transform our lives and to transform our world with humility. But yet let us also be a people who boldly and expectantly long for his kingdom and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we'll rattle the world with our prayer. Let's pray. God, I I pray that you would excite us with a passion for your glory and for your grace that would drive us to prayerfulness. Father, we long and ask for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, we posture ourselves intently and humbly and expectantly asking this to be so. Father, I pray that you would move boldly in our lives. Move in our world. Father, there are many things that disappoint us, discourage us, challenge us, difficulties that we face whether individually or corporately, looking in our own circles or abroad in the world. But Father, I pray that in all of these things we would recognize the importance of being a prayerful people who humble themselves to seek your face and ask that you would do what you alone can. Father, I pray that all these things, that you, in all these things you would glorify yourself. Father, use it.